Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Now, last time we went to space. Tonight, we are going to dive once again into the past. So, obviously, lots of science is forward-looking. We're always trying to find new things and new ways to do things and new knowledge about the things that we already know about. But there is also much to still be gleaned from studying the past, both for historical reasons and also to look into our ancient origins and to learn more about how man came to be what she is today. So let's start with a kitty cat. <laughs> I've mentioned before that I like both cats and dogs. Um, so I am not a partisan in that particular, uh, pseudo fight <laughs> that people like to pretend is actually a real thing that people should care about. Like what you like, people. It's really okay. <laughs> so tonight we're going to be starting out by talking about a newly rediscovered, I should say, a newly rediscovered Nazca line. So this is actually a giant cat geoglyph, and it's been found adorning a hillside in southern Peru. The cat was found by the Nazca Palpa Management Plan, supported by the Ministry of Culture in Peru. So they were actually remodeling a natural viewpoint in the Pampa de Nazca, according to a statement from the ministry, when they stumbled upon this new line, or new petroglyph, I should say, geoglyph. Huh. Um, so a petroglyph is usually something that's like, painted on a rock or etched on a rock or something like that. Um, those are petroglyphs. So you see those in, for instance, um, the American Southwest, there's lots of petroglyphs. In the Australian Outback, there's lots of petroglyphs, things like that. Um, but a geoglyph is something that's actually in the earth itself. So the Nazca Lines, for instance, um, the chalk horse in England, things like that are geoglyphs. And so you might be thinking, though, how the heck are they finding just now a Nazca line or geoglyph? How could it suddenly be discovered when people have crisscrossed the area thousands of times? Now, in fact, this geoglyph is also on a hillside, not on the plain. So you might think it would be even easier to find, but it turns out it's not. And this one had a secret issue that was going on, which is that natural erosion, because it's on a hillside, was responsible for almost completely obscuring the cat's outline. And some of the others that have been discovered in recent years have been found in places that hadn't yet actually been scientifically surveyed. Um, and so after about a week's worth of conservation, archaeologists were able to restore the portrait. The glyph was originally created sometime between 200 and 100 BCE. 
and the lines that make up the glyph are between 12 and 16 inches, with the entire figure measuring around 121 feet long. So that's uh, 12 to 16 inches wide uh, for how big the actual outline lines are. As with most of the Nazca lines, it's best viewed from the air. Um, and obviously a lot of these new gl glyphs are being found by drones, which is great. It's a great use for drones. Um, <laughs> there are lots of great scientific uses for drones. Uh, there's also some very questionable uses for drones, but we're not talking about any of those tonight. <laughs> So the style of cat, a profile with its head turned toward the viewer, suggests that it was made in the late Paracas period. Now, the Paracas were actually the precursors to the Nazca culture. And so the Nazca began around 100 BCE, but this is obviously a little bit older. The Paracas culture is known for depictions of felines on their ceramics and textiles. So it makes sense that they would have made this particular geoglyph. So the majority of the glyphs in the area were created between 200 and BCE and 500 CE, with even earlier lines constructed from piled stone dating back as far as 500 BCE. The majority of the lines are created, again, um, by scraping the top layer of reddish material on the plane to reveal a lighter colored layer beneath. Researchers have discovered between 80 and 100 previously unknown geoglyphs in the Nazca and Palpa valleys, which all predate the Nazca culture, according to archaeologist Johnny Isla, the director of the Nazca Lines Conservation Mission at the Ministry of Culture. These are smaller in size, drawn onto hillsides, and clearly belong to an earlier tradition, he said. It might seem surprising that new designs are still being found, but we know that there are more out there. In the last few years, the use of drones, which enable us to take images of the sides of hills, makes that possible. And, of course, before we move on to something else, let me remind you that the Nazca lines were 100% created by either the Paracas or Nazca people, depending on their age, and have nothing to do with any kind of intervention beyond that, uh, be it from some sort of undiscovered ancient civilization or ancient aliens. It was all done with very easy tools, very straightforwardly. You use string and sticks and you are able to measure out where things need to be. And then you use very simple, you know, scrapers and hose to move the stone aside. There is nothing particularly high tech about the Nazca lines in that sense. The fact that they were able to envision making all of these figures and had the ability to understand how to use these simple tools in order to create these amazing geoglyphs is something spectacular. But again, it doesn't require them to have been able to go up into the air and see them. They were for the gods. And so they thought the gods were seeing them. 
And so it is very easy. People have done it before. They have recreated it, um, recreated some of the more elaborate ones in small scale using very primitive tools um, as far as the actual like string and sticks and measuring uh, lines and things like that. It's all very easy to do. Um, and so it doesn't really require anything other than a lot of ingenuity, a lot of hard work of people taking the time to go 20 paces that way and make a very straight line and scrape things away. You know, it does take time, but it doesn't take anything more than time, human ingenuity, and human know-how. All right, let's move on now <laughs> and talk about dogs in particular, uh, but also pets more generally. So pet owners in the 19th century were the first to set up specific graveyards for their, for their beloved furry friends. But modern pet owners are more likely to associate their pets with being a member of the family, not just as mere pets. The first public pet cemetery was created in 1881 in Hyde Park, London. Of course, today they're a worldwide phenomenon. There are plenty here in Massachusetts. Um, I've seen at least two or three myself, and I'm sure there are more. Eric Tornigny a lecturer in historical archaeology at Newcastle University, decided to compare the inscriptions on memorials from cemeteries both past and present. Cemeteries can provide a wealth of knowledge for archaeologists about social structure and practices from the past. For example, we can reconstruct local demographics, kinship groups, the organization of the town, the socioeconomic distribution of people within a community, societal structures, as well as attitudes towards religion, death, and the afterlife, he notes. And therefore, it made sense to look at pet cemeteries in order to probe the relationships between people and their pets. He found that by the 20th century, not only did memorials suggest that owners thought of their pets as family members, they also increasingly featured Christian symbols and expressed the view that their pets had an immortal soul and that they would be reunited in the afterlife. Tordigny investigated 1,169 headstones in four British pet cemeteries atop graves dated between 1881 and 1993. Most were the final resting place of dogs. Although an increasing proportion of cats are represented when we progress through the 20th century, he wrote in the study. He found that after World War II, more pet owners referred to themselves as mummy or daddy on headstones. Owners also more frequently included surnames after the pet's name, which suggested that they felt they were part of the family. He found that as the Victorian era wound down and British society became more secular, people became less reluctant to express publicly a belief in animal souls, reunification in the afterlife, and the membership of animals within the family, Tornigay reported. This social shift shows up in the messages in the pet cemeteries. A memorial to grit in 1900 
was uncertain about whether they would be meeting again. With the stone reading, Could I think we'd meet again? It would lighten half my pain. By comparison, a 1952 headstone for Denny, described as a brave little cat, declared with certainty, God bless until we meet again. References to reunification in a perceived afterlife more than quadrupled between the 1940s and 1950s and rose even higher in the 1960s. The size and ornateness of the monuments, in contrast, declined after World War I, though pet monuments occasionally became larger and more elaborate by the mid-20th century, Tornigay again wrote in the study, which was published in the journal Antiquity. While it may be more socially acceptable than it was in the 19th century to grieve over pets, it may still be somewhat awkward to publicly share one's devastation, and therefore pet cemeteries can be a place for such grieving to be able to be um, allowed in a place without judgment. I often found people casually walking among the gravestones to pause and give their time to animals They'd never met, he told Live Science. It struck me that pet cemeteries are emotional spaces, not only for those who buried their animals there long ago, but also for those currently cherishing their times with pets. And so I know for my own sake that when Mira, my first cat that was truly mine as an adult, died, I was absolutely devastated. I definitely thought of her as a member of the family. And it was made worse by losing our other female cat, Ivy, soon after. And in fact, I just found the other day a small blanket that I had crocheted for Ivy um, because she was a thin cat and always seemed to be cold. I actually teared up a little bit remembering her um, because she was such a integral part of our lives for many, many years. And so I don't actually go so far as some people do, who actually would say that their cats are their children, um, or dogs, or whatever other animals that they have are actually their sort of adoptive children. I'm not quite that far on the scale, but I do think of them as cherished members of my family. We have two male cats now, Punk and Poe, so... We are still very much uh, feline-friendly uh, in our household. What I found most interesting was the idea that as England became more secular, people were more willing to express the belief that their pets had souls. And in fact, it reminded me of an old Twilight Zone episode where an old man and his dog accidentally drown and they are tempted by the devil to come into what he refers to as the Elysian Fields. But in the guise of a gatekeeper, he tells the old man that the dog would have to go to a separate heaven. This clues the old man into knowing that it's no place for him. And indeed, that gate leads to hell. This is according to an angel they meet further down the road. Clearly, heaven would allow would always allow you to take your pet with you, the story suggests. Uh, now, obviously, I I am not, uh, I don't believe in souls, so um, I have no 
I have no comment on whether or not I believe that animals would have souls if people had souls. I would assume that if people had souls, animals would have souls. But since I don't actually believe in a immortal soul outside of the human body, I unfortunately don't think that either myself nor my pets will be reunited in any kind of afterlife. Um, it's just not something that is going to happen as far as I can tell. But anyways, um, all we can do is just enjoy our new friends and continue to keep that sense of companionship and love going. Okay, let's actually go back to Peru to talk about mummified llamas, which come from a 500-year-old site on Peru's southern coast and represent the first direct evidence of Inca ritual sacrifice of these animals. The five llamas were naturally mummified and were decorated with colored strings made from the hair of either llamas or closely related animals. So there's llamas, there's vacunas, there's alpaca, there's a lot of camelids um, in South America. Found at the Inca Administrative Center of Tambo Viejo, four lay together beneath the floor of a large rectangular structure. Scattered remains of at least three more llamas were found nearby, with the fifth whole, wholly mummified llama being placed under the floor of a smaller building. According to Lidio Valdez, an archaeologist at the University of Calgary, who also published the findings in the journal Antiquity, bones of hundreds of llamas have previously been found at Tambo Viejo, which confirms um, accounts by Spanish by the Spanish uh, who talked about in historical documents of mass llama sacrifices to appease any of several Inca deities. Um, because unfortunately, the gods of South America, um, as many other gods that were sort of uh, hanging about before uh, some of the more modern uh, gods took over, <laughs> they were really into animal sacrifice. Um, and in some cases, people sacrifice. Um, but luckily, there's less of that these days. <laughs> um, we could talk about how there, there's not none of that, um, even in religions that claim not to have uh, any kind of sacrifice. But that's a whole different story for a whole different day. So the llamas, um, those llamas would have actually been um, butchered and eaten rather than being interred alive. And so that would have been a, sort of a different kind of ceremony. The newfound llamas were killed when they were young, bound, and as noted, buried alive, they think, because they didn't find any kind of marks on them that would indicate that they had been um, actually killed in any specific way that would show on the body. They were actually buried along with guinea pigs, and uh, unfortunately, if you didn't know, uh, guinea pigs were raised by the Inca and are actually still raised in many places in South America as food animals, and so they would make sense to also be sacrificed along with the llamas. 
as an important animal to the people. The researchers believed that they were sacrificed as part of an event held actually to win support from the local inhabitants for Incan annexation of the region. And so the sacrifices would most likely have occurred in front of local audiences, the researchers believe. Large ovens and the remains of burned animal bones and sweet potatoes at the site suggest a scenario in which public feasts followed ritual sacrifices. And so the Inca actually attempted, uh, for the most part, to rule by mutual agreement rather than with force whenever possible, um, because, you know, it's the smarter thing to do. And it's the way that you get people to actually want to be part of your empire and not constantly want to be revolting is to actually draw them into it with gifts and an understanding of why it's better to be part of the Incan empire rather than to oppose it. Um, because again, these people were very smart. Um, they were in no way, shape or form primitive and so this was something that they would do in order to try and bring a local tribe into the empire. Um, because again, it's much better to have willing new subjects than subjugated new subjects. Um, because subjugated suspect, subjugated subjects require a lot of, uh, military presence or police presence. And it's much easier to just have people who you give some, uh, feast, you, you, uh, host some feast with and tell them about all the benefits of being part of the empire where you have road building and you have shared resources and lots of, uh, good things and you share gods and the Inca know how to honor your local gods. And it's just a generally a much better thing to do than to try and conquer people. Um, and so a lot of the more successful empires over the years have actually done that. So, um, a lot of the empires in the East were places where people um, weren't subjugated. They were basically the local, uh, inhabitants were pretty much left alone as long as they gave tribute and did a couple of nominal things for, uh, the ruler du jour. And, uh, the Romans were a little bit like that too. Um, they, you know, had a very large military and the Inca had military as well. So, you know, they knew how to subjugate people and they knew that, uh, it wasn't necessarily always going to go as smoothly as it could in the ideal situation, but anywhere that you could bring people into the fold rather than uh, swallow them is always good for an empire. Okay, let us move on now and talk about horses. And so we are going to talk first about a man and his unfortunate accident while riding a horse. Archaeologists in England have found the exact location where, in 1536, King Henry VIII was badly injured in a jousting match. 
The impact was so bad that it's believed to have caused dramatic traumatic brain injury that permanently changed his personality. We know from accounts by Spanish and Venetian ambassadors that described the young king as charming, outgoing, clever, and handsome. After the accident, he became, according to contemporary accounts, impulsive, often depressed, and migraine-ridden. The tilt yard was discovered around 5.5 feet underground and was discovered using ground-penetrating radar. Now, archaeologists had long known that the jousting yard was located on the grounds of Greenwich Palace, which was the favorite of King Henry VIII and was actually where both he and his daughter Elizabeth I were born. And he often threw parties, hosted lavish banquets, and jousting matches on its ground. But the palace was basically a ruin uh, by the 17th century, especially since the 17th century uh, included the English Civil War. And so it was actually eventually demolished by Charles II, thus making the possession of the tilt yard impossible to discover without actually using some form of... Um, some form of radiometric or other kinds of um, sounding. And so it was actually even so hard that it was actually painted in different locations in various 17th century paintings, according to Simon Withers, a researcher and doctoral candidate who leads the captive research group at the School of Design at the University of Greenwich, which carried out the project. Whew, mouthful. Um, <laughs> and so they couldn't even do that. So sometimes you get lucky and there's a painting. And if you line up certain landmarks that still exist, you can be like, oh, it's probably right there. But unfortunately, painters aren't always painting what they actually see. Sometimes they're painting a sort of half-truth. <laughs> and so... There was no way to actually pin down where the jousting um, would have happened from these paintings. And so in the late 19th century, workers actually found Tudor bricks uh, during construction of a railway tunnel. And at the time, they suspected that they may have come from one of two viewing towers that once overlooked the yard. These would have been somewhat like bleachers and would have been where nobles would congregate and feast as they watched the jousting tournaments. But according to the new research, that location it is actually around 330 feet west of the spot where the tilt yard is actually located. Withers and his colleagues were on the hunt for the site because of the upcoming 500th anniversary of the Field of, of the Cloth of Gold, a royal summit held between England and France in 1520. And so again, using great ground-penetrating radar, luckily just before the outbreak of COVID-19, they found the signature of two octagonal buildings, which are almost certainly the remains of the viewing towers, which are depicted in those period paintings. Uh, at least we have that same, same depiction, uh, mirrored throughout the different paintings 
as having been eight-sided. It's very difficult to think of this octagon not being one of the towers, he said. The next step is to dig and see what is below the surface. The area is now on the grounds of the National Maritime Museum. The yard would have been quite large, around 650 by 250 feet, which would have allowed the jousters and their horses space to run towards each other and get up to a fair speed. Uh, they would have been only separated by a central wooden barrier. If you've ever seen any movie about medieval times that has jousting, they usually get it right because a jousting uh, yard is very hard to uh, get wrong. Um, and so what happened was that on January 24th, 1536, the 44-year-old Henry was jousting when his horse charged so quickly that the king toppled from the saddle and the horse fell on top of him. Sources say that Her Henry went, quote, for two hours without speaking, which modern researchers have suggested mean means that he was unconscious, which would make sense for a heavy brain injury. And so, again, this would be indicative of a traumatic brain injury, and we now know that this sort of trauma can indeed cause changes in personality. And so this was a start of some very unfortunate events. Um, he was on his second wife by then, and um, she had given birth to Elizabeth, but she was uh, pregnant at the time, and she was told that he was most likely going to die, and so she actually miscarried a male baby. And he blamed her, never forgave her, and that was the beginning of, uh, you know, the sort of off-with-their-heads era of uh, King Henry VIII, unfortunately. Okay, let's move on now and talk about a different kind of horse story. But before we do that, let's actually take a break. And so when we come back, we'll move from Western Europe to uh, the East and talk about Mongolian horsemen. But again, let us take a break. Hang on for just a minute. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so. Yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. 
Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. And this time, we are going to be talking about how horses can be central to the success of a people. Now, those people were the Xiongnu, a fierce band of mounted archers who charged down the steps of what is today Mongolia to clash with the armies of modern northwest China some 2,200 years ago. They were actually the warriors from the north that inspired China to build the Great Wall of China. (laughs) And they also caused the Chinese to begin to create their own cavalry ranks. The Xiongnu left no written records. However, recent studies of DNA are filling in some of the gaps in our knowledge of these Central Asian equestrian nomads. Two studies report on a First, a sweeping survey of ancient DNA from more than 200 individuals across 6,000 years. And secondly, an analysis of horse skeletons just before the rise of the Xiongnu. The studies trace the movements of populations across Central Asia and the spread of horsemanship. The studies show the horse was probably the driver of some of the ancestry shifts we see in the human population, said Ludovico Orlando of Paul Sabatier University, who was not involved in the paper. The horse provided new range in patterns of human mobility and allowed people to travel longer distances faster. Now, horses were probably domesticated by the bowtie culture around 3500 BCE in what is now Kazakhstan. At first, they would have been used mainly for meat and milk, 
but later they became being they they started to be attached to chariot wheels or to wheeled chariots uh and also they were uh they began to be ridden and so they started on their route to becoming what we now think of as modern horses now a team led by Chungwon Jung of Seoul Inter- of Seoul National University and Harvard University's Christina Warriner sampled and sequenced DNA from Mongolian graves which span from between 5000 BCE all the way to 1000 CE This was the time of the famous horse warriors of Genghis Khan's Mongol Empire, Mongol Empire, a thousand CE, that is. And so DNA evidence from Western, Europe, Western European populations show that there was an influx of people from the East around 3000 BCE. The Yamnaya were nomadic herders of cattle, sheep, and goats, and they moved into Western Europe from Russia and the Ukraine, causing a large influx of new DNA into these Western populations. The Yamnaya were also found in Mongolia, based on burials from Bronze Age Mongolia, but they left only their cultural traces, such as allowing people to become dairy-oriented pastoralists, but they did not interbreed with this Mongolian population. DNA evidence does show, however, that another group from the steppes, the Shintashta, did move into the area around 2000 BCE, and they did in- indeed interbreed with the local population. And so they were the ones who would actually bring major changes to the Mongolian grasslands. Starting in around 1200 BCE, the Mongolians began to become true horsemen. Evidence of selective breeding for size and endurance, along with bridle bits, riding pants, and even primitive saddles, appear in the in the records, according to William Taylor of the University of Colorado Boulder, a co-author on both papers. Mongolians became a horse-riding people, with horse skeletons buried around 350 BCE in the Tian Shan Mountains, in what is now China's Xinjiang province, showing the signs of having been ridden, which included spinal damage from the weight of a rider and changes to the mouth caused by adaptations to bits and bridles, or bridles. Put the lower back pathologies together with evidence for a bridle, and it all suggests horses were being ridden, says Sandra Olson, an archaeologist at the University of Kansas Lawrence, who was not part of either study. Once the Xianu became skilled horsemen, they also became skilled warriors. They developed an empire that reached vast distances, and around 200 BCE, the Xianu consolidated nomadic tribes from across Eurasia into a large confederation that rivaled the power of China. The Xiangnu have been a source of constant worry and harm to China, one contemporary Chinese historian wrote. 
they move about in search of water and pasture, and have no walled cities or fixed dwellings, nor do they engage in any kind of agriculture. So they were definitely not Chinese. <laughs> the DNA evidence shows that the region was transformed during the 300-year reign of the Xianu into a multi-ethnic empire long before the Mongols. Before 200 BCE, there were three genetically distinct populations who lived side by side on the Mongolian steppes. But around 200 BCE, the genetic diversity exploded. Populations from Western and Eastern Mongolia began to intermarry with each other and with populations from as far away as modern Iran and Central Asia. This is the first such example of this kind of widespread mixing, which had never been seen before at that scale, Jian says. You can see the entire Eurasian genetic profile in the Xiangnu people. It also suggests that the, the domestication of the horse truly transformed the ability of people in Central Asia to move through the steppes and come into contact with many different peoples. Graves of Xiangnu elites include such grave goods as Roman glass, Persian textiles, and Greek silver, suggesting a rich connection to the western part of Eurasia. They found 11 skeletons from the period that show genetic sig signatures similar to the Sarmatians, nomadic warriors who ruled the region north of the Black Sea, almost 1,250 miles away from, Mongolian, from Mongolia. There's no written evidence of contact with Sarmatians, and it's not well attested archaeologically. It's really surprising they're mixing over these long distances, said Sagaan Turbat, an archaeologist at the Mongolian Academy of Sciences Institute of Archaeology. This kind of information is a is really a game changer. And so the team hopes that further genome research will help them better understand the structure of this empire, which again left no written records more thoroughly. The Xiangnu are doing the things that empires do, forcing or enticing people to move, says University of Michigan Ann Arbor archaeologist Brian Miller. Are people sent out to rule, or are the local elites allowed to continue, he asks. Only genetics could answer that. And so hopefully we will get more genetic information and we'll be able to answer those questions. But we are going to move on now, and we are going to talk about something that is a constant problem in science. We have talked a lot about this over the years, and in fact, it turns out I recently uh, was told by my husband that this little uh, show here is officially six years old, or as he put it, could officially go, could officially enroll in kindergarten. <laughs> and so we've talked about this a lot, and it is the issue of women being accepted and recognized as not only scientists, but also women being accounted for in scientific discoveries, in scientific tests, 
and narratives. And so this is the lifelong struggle for women to be able to be taken seriously as fully formed human beings. And so let us take for example, for example, the accepted wisdom that in ancient times men were hunters and women were gatherers. Recently, the remains of a 9,000-year-old human in a burial pit high in the Andes has once again reminded us that accepted wisdom is not always correct. The skeleton was accompanied by a toolkit of 20 stone projectile points and blades stacked neatly beside it. It suggested that the burial was that of a high-status hunter. Everybody was talking about how this was a great chief, a big man, says archaeologist Randy Haas of the University of California, Davis. That is, until bioarchaeologist Jim Watson of the University of Arizona noted that the bones were slender and light. I think your hunter might be female, he told Haas. The researchers now report that the burial was indeed that of a female, which led them to re-examine reports of other ancient burials in the Americas, and they found ten additional women buried with projectile points, which indicates that they may have been hunters. The message is that women have always been able to hunt and, in fact, and have, in fact, hunted, says archaeologist Bonnie Pitblado of the University of Oklahoma, Norman, who was not part of the study. Now, the idea that men were hunters and women gatherers was consolidated at an influential symposium in Chicago in 1966, which cemented the idea of the gender roles. And, of course, we know that 1966 was a very enlightened time for uh the relation between men and women. Of course, it wasn't. Um, it still isn't, frankly. Uh, and so it was very easy for men to believe that this was the truth and that they were absolutely the ones who went out and hunted. Um, there's a famous uh, quote from, or an infamous quote, I should say, there is a um, blog I used to read a lot uh, called We Hunted the Mammoth. And that quote was from someone who basically was trying to say that women were inferior because men had always been the ones who went out and hunted the mammoth and did all of the things that were hard. And women just sort of sat around and had babies and did nothing. Um, and that's a very prevalent idea even today. Um and so it comes right out of this uh, symposium in the 60s. And of course, it is supported in uh, reality. So some of the remaining hunter-gatherer groups uh, do tend to have that distribution of labor, where the men tend to be the ones who go out hunting, and the women tend to be the ones who stay at home and gather um, you know, fruits and berries and things like that, the way that, uh, you know, you were taught in grade school. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's always been that way or that those people haven't been influenced by other factors. And so Haas and his team, including local Aymara colleagues, which is very nice. I appreciate that he, uh, had actual local um, Aymara people on his team. They weren't on the hunt for female warriors, 
they discovered the fossilized remains of six individuals in burial pits at the site of Willamaya Pachd Pachdxta. Um, sorry, it's P A T J X A. So I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. At 3,925 meters of altitude on the Altiplano of southern Peru. Two of the people were buried with stone tools. One person, likely 17 to 19 years old, had four projectile points, which would have been attached to short spears for hunting, several cutting blades, a possible knife, and scraper tools, most likely used for processing animal hides and meat. The kit of 20 stone tools and ochre, which can be used to tan hides, were neatly stacked next to the top of one individual's thigh bone, as if they had been in a leather pouch that had obviously rotted away over time. Another set of remains likely belonged to someone 25 to 35 years old, and they were buried with two projectile points. The pits also held bone fragments from Andean deer and camelids, such as the vacuna or guanaco. The researchers were able to determine the sex of the skeletons by using a brand new forensic method developed by co-author Glendon Parker of UC Davis. It involves analyzing whether an individual's tooth enamel carries a male or female version of a protein called amyl amylogenin. The individual with the toolkit was female, while the other individual with hunting tools was male. Carbon-nitrogen isotope analysis of the, women, of the woman's teeth showed that she ate a typical hunter's diet of animal, meats, and plants. Some might have suggested that this was a one-off, which is why Haas anticipated this complaint, and so the team searched reports of burials at 107 other sites in the Americas older than 8,000 years. They found 10 women and 16 men who were buried with hunting tools. This suggests early big-game hunting was likely gender-neutral, he and his colleagues report in the journal Science Advances. However, two of the graves were female infants found with hunting implements. Buried tools may have been offerings for male hunters to express their sorrow, for instance. Pitblado suggests, though, that even if all of those females female remains belonged to hunters, the meta-analysis suggests that women have had the capacity for being hunters since early times. And that it should be no surprise that women could hunt. Piplato adds, These women were living high up in the Andes at 13,000 feet full time, she says. If you can do that, surely you can bring down a deer. <laughs> okay, so let us talk about one more story in the Americas before we wrap up for tonight. And so we are going to shift forward in time and slightly north to the Maya city of Tikal. Researchers have discovered that the Maya had a functioning water filtration system. The system was millennia ahead of its time. They discovered a volcanic mineral that captures microbes and heavy metals in one of the city's largest reservoirs. The material is not local, which suggests it was deliberately added to the reservoir as a filter. Now, we've long thought that great leaps in innovation are concentrated in the Eurasian civilizations, but early civilization, civilizations the world over had their own breakthrough innovations. 
Tikal is, is situated in the tropical forests of northern Guatemala and flourished for more than a thousand years. At its height, around 700 CE, it's believed that the city would have held more than 45,000 people. It was one of the preeminent Maya cities, says Nicholas Dunning, a UC geoarchaeologist. Tikal's populace had to deal with the dry season between roughly November and April. Storing water in reservoirs was helpful, but only if the water remained potable. A few years ago, Dunning and his colleagues excavated sediments from Tikal's, from several of Tikal's reservoirs. They were intrigued to find that one of the largest reservoirs, Coriental, had significantly less heavy metals, toxin-producing algae, and a mineral associated with fecal pollution than the others. The water quality of Coriental was much higher, Dunning said. Somehow, the water was being cleaned. The Maya used gardens as their bathrooms, Dunning says. The water coming into the reservoir would not have been very clean. And so the researchers looked at the sediments in the bottom of the reservoir, and they found quartz crystals. And so they found four distinct layers, each a few centimeters thick, of brownish millimeter scale crystals. The grains can be used for filtering water, but they don't capture all of the harmful mo microbes. They actually found that they contained tiny, tiny crystals of zeolites. This type of material can purify water by trapping both microbes and heavy metals within a porous structure and are still used today. Study co-author Kenneth Ten Kersley, an, archaeolog an archaeological geologist at the University of Cincinnati, notes, just about everything we drink, from bottled water to wine, is filtered through a zeolite filter. Now, clearly they wouldn't have known specifically about this, but they would have known that when they went to the quartz and zeolite-rich rock formation about 18 and a half miles north of Tikal, that the water from there was tasty and was clear. And so we don't know exactly how their filtration system would have worked, Um the team suggests that they might have used wooden reed matting, and so that might have held the quartz zeolite-containing rocks underwater just upstream of the reservoir's inflow. And so this impermanent barrier would have periodically been washed away by flash floods, explaining the debris found at the bottom of the reservoir today. And so that explains why you would have these layers of the um, quartz on the bottom of the um, reservoir. And so, yeah, it's very cool. And so these zeolites, they can purify water by trapping both microbes and heavy metals within a porous structure. And as noted, they're still used today. So again, we have to remember that these people were doing amazing things and they had great ingenuity. They were just as smart as modern humans. They just didn't have the accumulated knowledge that we have. And so um, I just think it's really important to remember that we have to look at these people not as some kind of uh, primitive civilization, but as people who were doing all sorts of crazy and innovative things. And so, yeah, 
I hope that you have enjoyed tonight's uh, journey through the past, and I hope that our future will uh, look up and be filled with lots and lots of innovation and uh, good things, because right now it's still a little uncertain. All right, that's all for tonight. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.